Well, it's a privilege to be with you this morning. Um, a few months ago, uh, my mother, who's in her mid-80s, became very ill. And uh, we were very concerned. Uh, we really thought we were going to lose her. My dad's 89 years old and in great health, and he was doing his best to care for my mother, but it, it, it didn't look good. And the doctors weren't sure what was wrong with her, which is even more disturbing. And uh, when I, I spent a lot of time visiting her. They live not too far from here, an hour away. Um, but she looked like a person on the edge of death. I mean, I walked in the room and looked at her and I thought, she's going, my mother's leaving us. The illness had really taken its toll on, on, on her physique, on the way that she looked. But she recovered and she's just about back to full health, had Easter dinner with us. Um, you know, there's certain peculiarities about your parents and you recognize them when they turn back to normal. Um, <laughs> And she's back to normal, we're glad for that. And um, my kids, I'm sure, say that about me. Um, the illness did have effect, certainly, uh, but, but she seems to be okay, she really does. And it really felt miraculous to us to watch her move from that place where death seemed so apparent and, and to watch her come back to this place of life. But I'll tell you what, I can hardly even imagine what it would be like to encounter someone who had been restored to life after that person had suffered death. I, I, I can barely imagine that, especially someone who had suffered a, a slow, brutal, torturous death. But Jesus' disciples had that experience, didn't they? So we're told in the story. Uh, I love the story that we were given today. I, I love the beauty of it. I love the honesty of it. And when we see Jesus appearing among his friends, there are a number of significant things that happen. Uh, first of all, his appearance alone was incredibly significant. But at the same time, he does some other things. He, he commissions his disciples, he sends them out. As the Father has sent me, he said, I'm sending you as well. They are to participate in his ongoing ministry in the world. This is not a passive experience for them at all. And then he, he breathes on them and he tells them to receive the Holy Spirit, the very breath of God. And it's an encounter that is filled with more amazing things than one single group of shaken people should be able to process in a relatively short period of time. But it must have been joyful for them as well, just having Jesus back, even for that relatively brief period of time. However, Somebody was missing. Uh, Thomas, we're told, was not present when all this stuff happened. And when he heard about it, he was skeptical. He wasn't buying into the story quite as easily as his friends perhaps thought he might. He just wasn't picking up what they were putting down about Jesus. He really needed to see this for himself before he could uh, embrace some kind of belief, that he could believe the story that they had told to him was true. And as a result, for centuries, he has been labeled Doubting Thomas. I mean, the guy has a flicker of skepticism and for all eternity, he is <laughs> Doubting Thomas. I'm glad my foibles aren't made that public or written down. Well, I have to confess to you this morning, if I'm gonna be honest, 
is that I consider Thomas to be my patron saint. You know, my blog, I have a little painting of Thomas checking out the wounds, you know. I, I relate to Thomas. I, I, you know, I mean, sure, Thomas had seen other miraculous things at the hands of Jesus, hadn't he? I mean, he was there when all this stuff happened. He had seen people raised from the dead. It wasn't like being raised from the dead was entirely new information or an entirely new experience for Thomas. Uh, but you know, it's one thing to see Lazarus emerge from the tomb, healthy and whole. When the last time you saw Lazarus, he was healthy and whole. Or when you see a, a, a body laid out in repose on its way to burial and find it rising up at the touch of Jesus and the color of life enhancing the skin once again, uh, it's a wonderful thing, clearly. But it's another thing altogether to see a man ravaged by brutal torture and then hanged on a cross for the better part of a day and then have that body just fall limp and then to have all of your friends claim that he's back again, right as rain. Well, without seeing it for yourself, it would require a real stretching of the imagination, if we're gonna be honest here. And that seems to have been happening for Thomas. You know, I want to believe things that are wonderful and miraculous, but I don't want to believe things that are not true. As amazing and thrilling as a fantasy might be, I don't want to believe and then order my life around something that has no bearing in reality. As far as I'm concerned, there just is no merit in that. When I was a freshman in college, back when the earth was still cooling, <laughs> um, one of my friends informed a select group of us that he had a lead on a bunch of World War II era motorcycles. And he said they'd been packed in grease, crated, they were perfectly preserved in some obscure warehouse, probably where the Ark of the Covenant was being held after Indiana Jones <laughs> couldn't find it anymore. And, uh, and they'd never been used. So they were in absolute perfect condition. They'd been like frozen in space, just waiting for a time such as this to be revealed. So it was 1970, and so the bikes would have been you know, 25 or 30 years old at, at that time. And, uh, and the best part of this information that he brought to us is that each one of us could buy one for $25. That's what he told us. And we started imagining ourselves riding around the city. We were in Pasadena. Out on these great old Easy Rider motorcycles and we would come back and park them in a big line in the student parking lot and the girls would think we were wonderful and amazing. And the images of that dominated our minds. It's all we talked about for quite a while and, and we anticipating the realizing of this wonderful opportunity and uh, who needs to study and go to work when you're getting a motorcycle for $25. Well, of course, <clears throat> There were no such motorcycles. It wasn't that we couldn't get them, it's that they did not even exist. Now fortunately, none of us 
ponied up the 25 bucks, so we weren't out any money. But the fantasy had occupied our mind, and, and for a really short period of time, we, we had allowed something absolutely unreal to take center stage in our minds, to dominate our thinking, to order our other activities even. Well, Thomas kind of strikes me as the kind of person who had his life ordered around things that were concrete and solid. I understand that. Uh, he didn't want to just hear the stories. He wanted to see, to hear, to taste, to touch. For him, it, it seems that belief in something just abstract and fanciful, no matter how wonderful, was just to order one's life around a wish dream. He probably wished that the resurrection story that his friends told him was absolutely true. What, what a great thing if that could possibly be true. But he wasn't gonna put all of his eggs in a basket that was woven out of fantasy. Uh, Thomas needed more. And so do I. And maybe some of you as well. What's really stunning about this story, what's so beautiful about this story is that Jesus shows up a second time. And this time it appears that one of his main goals in this secondary visit was to engage with Thomas. Jesus invites Thomas to do what it takes for him to be able to embrace belief in the resurrection. And that is to feel for himself the wounds in Jesus' hands and in his side. Now, we don't know if Thomas actually did it. The text doesn't tell us that he actually did do that. But we do hear him declare his belief by offering to us one of the most profound confessions of faith in the entire Bible. He looks at Jesus and he says, my Lord and my God. Now that ain't bad for a doubter. <laughs> well, it seems that Jesus recognizes in the story that this is going to be an ongoing issue for generations to come, and, and why wouldn't it be? He speaks of, of what a blessing it is going to be for people who, who have not had the privilege of being physically present with him, of seeing him in the flesh, to then come to a place of belief in him. People like us, people like you and me, people who wish they could see with their own eyes and touch with their own hands, but can't. Well, Thomas's doubts don't appear to be much of an obstacle for Jesus, really. Uh, in fact, he goes out of his way to meet Thomas right in the place of those doubts. And he gives Thomas what he needs for faith. In a way, See, Thomas had, had put himself in the center of his own kind of private universe, using his senses to, to verify and validate what was going on around him. I get that. I operate like that most of the time. Uh, we're physical folk. Uh, that's kind of how it works for us, I think. But that's where Jesus meets Thomas. He meets him right at that point of need. And Thomas's universe at that point shifts, and Jesus is now at the center, declared by the doubter to be Lord and God. Now nothing's ever gonna stay the same for Thomas, even though he will still see, taste, and touch his way through life. 
That's inevitable. And Jesus knows how Thomas is, but, but he doesn't leave him just mired in his doubts. Can that really be true for us? Um, is there space for us when skepticism rises, when doubts come up? Can we still be in the club, so to speak? Uh, will Jesus meet us at those tough places? Will he meet us at our places of skepticism or do, do our doubts and concerns cause him to turn away? Leave us stranded until we can get it together. You know, if the story of Thomas is any indication, then, then we can expect Jesus to show up even in the shadows of our own resistance. I think it's significant though in the story that Thomas did not divorce himself from the other disciples, even in the midst of his doubts. He, he didn't show up that day and they said, hey, Jesus is back and he said, I'm out of here. He didn't say that. He remained in the space. He didn't isolate in his doubts and, and then cut himself off from the space that he had occupied with the others for so long. He kept showing up in the space that Jesus had, had originally created, bringing his doubts with him and Jesus met him there. Well, I think we need space for those doubts. Uh, sometimes the certainties aren't working for us. Uh, sometimes we've gone through something in our lives that, that causes those certainties to fracture and even shatter in some cases and we wonder if God has really departed from us. Um, we need space for those doubts. But what we don't need is withdrawal and isolation. And that means that we have got the opportunity to support one another when those doubts emerge. I mean, that's if we are left alone with all of that, alone and isolated, then that's how, as, as James tells us, that we get tossed and turned by the wind, never expecting to receive anything from God. But we can carry one another in that. Um, when, when my faith is struggling, I need yours to shore me up. Uh, when, I, when my doubts are just falling all over the top of me, I need your confidence in God to help me carry through this, but I can't do that all by myself and neither can you. See, we can meet our brothers and sisters in all of our skepticisms because we've got confidence that Jesus is gonna meet us there as well. And he'll provide what we need in order for faith to sprout and grow. That's one thing I am confident about. You know, I have to wonder something else. Did Jesus offer a second breathing for Thomas? You know, he, uh, he breathed on the others he granted them the Holy Spirit. He breathes on them. He says, receive the Holy Spirit. Now I want to give a little footnote to that. I happen to notice that when he does that, nothing spectacular seems to happen at that moment. And I must say, I take a little comfort in that. Um, or maybe Thomas was granted the gift by association. I mean, he was one of the original 12. Maybe it just sort of leaked out on him somehow. Um, regardless, because we don't really know, we're not told, the gift of the Spirit did come to all of them. It came in all of their messiness, it came in their confusion, and it came in their doubts. And there was plenty of all that stuff to go around. The Spirit, too, would, would seemingly, from our perspective, seem to sprout and grow as time went on. Uh, the Spirit came to them initially as Jesus, Jesus breathed on them as, as a kind of deposit, signaling what would someday be the ultimate immersion in God's presence in the new heaven and the new earth that was yet to come. 
The breathing in a way was that alpha pointing forward to the final omega. And Thomas wasn't left out. You know, sometimes I, I, I think people, maybe us, maybe others, hopefully, talk about their life of faith, their journey of faith, how they're being formed by God, what we often call spiritual formation, sort of like the way that they talk about communion or the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. And that is that um, you have to get it together before you can get involved. That was my problem really as a young Christian in the church where I was nurtured as a young person. But I always would hear that. We would only observe the Eucharist once a month like you do, you know, in some places. And, uh, and there was a lot of time spent in getting worthy because you don't want to take in an unworthy fashion, as, as Paul tells us. And so that was kind of translated as you, you need to get it together, get rid of all the impure thoughts, all the, you know, confess sin, all this very important stuff. The problem was, from the point where I was sitting in my chair to where I came up to do communion, I could have like 12 impure thoughts just in that space of 15 feet. And I, you know, it's like, okay, okay. I got this down, got, okay, pure thoughts. Up to, oop, nope, got, got to go back, got to go do this. It would take me years just to get from my chair to the communion table. At, at that rate, I would never, ever participate in wine and bread, in body and blood. Could never quite get it together. Uh, worthiness always seemed elusive to me. I had way too much unworthiness that I didn't even know how to discard. You know, I once heard a comedian comment on the old phrase, you can't take it with you. He said, but what if you can? What if you die and go to heaven and God says, hey, where's your stuff? Uh, well, we do come to Jesus with our stuff. And that includes our doubts. It includes our uncertainties, our need for authentication, even sometimes our demands for verification. And we can hunker down in our secret space and just stew over these uncertainties, but, but coming with our baggage over and over again to the space where Jesus is prone to show up is where we will find our lives formed by him, even in the midst of those doubts. And we dare not minimize the deposit he's already made in us, the alpha that anticipates the omega. And I believe that's where verification will come for those of us who need it. That, that Jesus continues to show up and be present to us in and through the Holy Spirit. And we might not be able to literally touch Jesus' wounds, but by the work of the Holy Spirit, he touches ours. You know, like Jesus' return visit for Thomas's sake, we cannot force our calendar on Jesus. He shows up in unexpected ways, and he shows up when he knows the time is right. And that's because we are not the center of the universe. He is. You know, as I was uh, <clears throat> just processing through this text, uh, even this week, it occurred to me that, you know, it's, it's hardly unusual in a setting like this, even though here we all are at church, that some of us would show up really relating to the whole Thomas deal, struggling with some things, uh, maybe things that don't have any answers to them, at least none that we can put our arms around. And uh, I, I've been around folks enough in these settings to know how easy it is to feel like you've been left out, that somewhere along the way, you missed the breathing, 
Somewhere along the way, your doubts and your sense of uncertainty disqualified you. You can still come, but you're gonna have to sit in the back. You can be in the club, but you're not gonna have full membership. Whatever analogy we want to use, and, and you just, you know, you hope to go to heaven when you die, but it's not gonna be much fun in the meantime. And I think that the Lord would like to say to you today that he keeps coming to you a second time, a third time, a fourth time to meet you in the place of your struggle, the place of your doubts. Uh, He's coming again to breathe upon you um, that you've not been left behind, that his heart is for you. And today when you come to the Lord's table, as Michael leads us in sharing body and blood, bread and wine, that you come recognizing that you come at his invitation, that he looks at you with the doubts and the pain and the suffering and the brokenness and all the stuff you've got, and he says, come to the table. The invitation comes to you today. And for those who will gather for prayer afterward, if, if you're struggling in that place, ask someone to pray for you, that your eyes might be open, your ears might be open, that your heart would open and bring all your baggage with you because Jesus will probably have some unpacking to do. Amen.